so when I started introducing the a Jedi concept into the field of international education, it was because I really think that without justice and equity, there is no diversity and inclusion. And that's really not our goal, right? Our goal is something much loftier than that, which is where I've kind of adjusted the um, acronym to now, um, where I think about it in terms of justice and equity with dignity and intention, because that's really what we want. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of World Stride's inaugural podcast, Changing Lives Through Education Abroad, a weekly series of conversations with international education's most interesting thought leaders, as well as discussions on emerging trends, best practices, and innovation happening in our field. I'm your host, Zach McInnes, Senior Director of Campus Partnerships with World Strides, and I'm very much looking forward to this week's episode. Today, we're taking a deep dive in education abroad at America's historically Black colleges and universities, our HBCUs. Many historically Black colleges and universities are actively engaged in education abroad and have been for many decades. Like other institutions, many HBCUs tend to offer an array of diverse program options that allow students to participate in the high-impact practice of study abroad, all while making progress towards degree completion. However, much of the literature and conversation regarding study abroad at HBCUs up to this point has focused on the barriers that prevent students from participating at comparable levels to other institutions. But the contributions made by HBCUs to the field of education abroad as a whole are important, innovative, and frankly, nothing short of extraordinary. When thinking about HBCUs, how can we shift our mindset from this focus on the barriers to a celebration of the important work education abroad practitioners at HBCUs do to create life-changing experiences for their students? And what can other institutions learn from the experience of HBCUs engaged in study abroad? We'll dig into those questions and more today. To that end, it is my distinct honor to welcome onto the podcast a true international education legend who I know has thought a lot about this topic, Dr. Keisha Abraham. A longtime fixture in education abroad, Dr. Abraham in particular is distinguished by her unwavering commitment to comprehensive internationalization at HBCUs. A graduate of the esteemed Spelman College, Dr. Abraham herself is a product of an HBCU education. She also has a PhD in comparative literature with an emphasis on post-colonial literature and culture, specifically African diaspora women's literature, and popular education from Binghamton University. An elected council member at the Forum on Education Abroad, Dr. Abraham has collaborated on working groups, presented at forums, seminars, and conferences on both international education and African diaspora literature all over the world. In addition, she served as Dean of Arts and Sciences and Director of International Education at Florida Memorial University, a private HBCU located in Miami Gardens for nearly 15 years. Like I said, she's a true international education legend. She is the founder and president of the Abraham Consultancy, which I know keeps her pretty busy these days. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. Stay tuned. You do not want to miss this episode. Keisha Abraham, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Zach. It's really a pleasure to get to talk to you in this way. To begin, I'd love for you to give us a brief overview of your professional journey and your work in the justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, as well as education abroad space. 
Certainly. I am really, really grateful for all of the ways in which a, a not straight career, not linear kind of career path um, has brought me to this place. In addition to being an HBCU graduate, I'm also the product of two HBCU parents. Both of my parents went to HBCUs and talked about the value of our cultures and our institutions since I was really very young. But when I decided to go into university teaching, I knew that I wanted to serve HBCUs in some way. And I thought at the time, you know, it would be a dream to be able to work in an HBCU, but how do you even get into that space? And lo and behold, an opportunity arose while I was already living here in South Florida to go and work at Florida Memorial University, which was such an incredible experience because it has a richness as an HBCU that is unlike so many other institutions in that it is a predominantly Caribbean school based because of its location. And so I really got an opportunity to think about how the work that I'd been doing for many years before in Southern Africa, in the Caribbean, could have an impact on this campus. And so I remember going to the provost and saying, oh, so, you know, tell me about your study abroad programs. And he was like, don't have any. I'm like, oh, well, guess what I want to do? <laughs> guess what I think we need to do? And so um, I was really, really grateful that they allowed me to found study abroad office there. Little, little scraps, little small beginning uh, into growing it into a full program. And during that time, it put me in contact with lots of other HBCUs doing international work, thinking about how we see ourselves more globally. And so it was a beautiful synchronicity of my academic interests and you know, my, my aspirational interests that all of us have a study abroad opportunity. And what I started to realize when I worked at a, a, when I started to kind of work with more institutions and more partner organizations, I realized that there was a, something missing in the way that diversity and inclusion were being framed. It was kind of being framed in a way that was like something that happens to us, not something that we're active agents in. So when I started introducing the Jedi concept into the field of international education, it was because I really think that without justice and equity, there is no diversity and inclusion. And that's really not our goal, right? Our goal is something much loftier than that, which is where I've kind of adjusted the, the, the um, acronym to now, um, where I think about it in terms of justice and equity with dignity and intention, because that's really what we want. Thank you so much for sharing that, Keisha. You know, I understand that you played a key role in a new book that was recently published, which is very exciting. I would love for you to tell our listeners a bit about this endeavor, what messages you hope folks will take away from it, and how you hope practitioners in the field will be able to apply it to their work. Absolutely. Well, thanks to the brilliance that is Mr. Andre P. Stevenson, who is the Director of International Programs at Elizabeth City State College and HBCU in North Carolina, we co-edited a book that's called The Half Yet to Be Told, Study Abroad at HBCUs. And this is um, the first assets-based book, uh, edited collection of essays about HBCUs, the contributions that they've made, the strides that they've made, both thinking about inbound, inbound international students and the safe spaces that HBCUs provide for them and have for uh, generations. And it gives us an opportunity to look at the history of international education in this particular institution type but also um, how the future is being created by practitioners, by scholars, and by people really kind of thinking in innovative ways about not only how to reunite the African diaspora, but also how to encourage our students and our administration to think more broadly about how we use our resources. 
Fantastic. And and Keisha, where where could our listeners find this book? How can they access it? Oh, <laughs> well, fortunately, we were able to publish this book through the Forum on Education Abroad. It's part of the Standards and Action series. And I'm so thrilled about that because this literally is saying, how do we put the standards that we've agreed upon as a field into action? What are some examples of how to do that work? And so this book not only has merit and interest and value for people who are practitioners at HBCUs, but also people who are working in provider organizations, people who are working at other institutions, to really think about how we do this thing of a Jedi education. So the book is available through the forum's website. Uh, I believe it's also available on some of those large platforms, like the ones that begin with an A and other things like that. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. For our listeners who aren't able to see Dr. Abraham right now, she has a copy behind her on our bookshelf. And <laughs> I have one too over here. Right, well, oh, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Keisha. You know, as we dive into this conversation today, I'd love it if you could set the stage for us. What makes going to an HBCU a distinct educational experience? And what are some factors that students and their families consider when choosing an HBCU? Oh, I love that question, Zach. It is, it is something, I, I used to say indescribable, but the more I do this work, the more I realize that there are some tangible elements to it. Um, I'll talk a little first about my own kind of journey to Spelman College, because I think that has some relevance to this. I mentioned that both of my parents are HBC alum. They both went to Central State. I grew up in a community of people who all went to HBCUs, just a bunch of them. And so honestly, I didn't realize that there was something else <laughs> when I was growing up. I really just figured that this is this is the best kind of education. It's the best kind of school. Um, but the more I started to look at colleges in high school, when I was in high school, um, I realized that I wanted a different experience for my parents. I thought I did. I thought I thought, right, we always think we want to be different from the people we grew up from. We want to have our own path. Um, so I looked at other institutions. We visited. My parents said, uh, we'll take you on a college tour and we'll visit any school you want to see, going from Pittsburgh all the way down to Georgia. We'll drive together and we'll just see everywhere. But for every school you want to see, we're going to take you to visit an HBCU. Oh, my goodness. What I got to realize was that we have schools that are in urban situations. We have schools that are that are that are small rural communities. Um, some that are much more research intense. Some that are more service oriented. I felt in every institution, you know, this 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 largesse of opportunity for deep scholarship. These kind of rich histories. Like as soon as you reach the campus, you see the history kind of living with you. What I couldn't account for was the feeling. Even trying to talk about it now, every time I try to talk about this, I get kind of emotional because I still remember the first time I set foot on Spelman College's campus. It was a feeling. It was an awareness of how I felt seen, heard, and valued from the very minute I stepped foot on campus. Um, my family arrived and a woman who was coming into the campus said, oh, hey, sister, do you need any help with anything? And it was just this kind of care that she demonstrated. And then I realized that everywhere, obviously, when I started school there <laughs> and started paying attention to the culture, I realized that this is one of the things that really sets these institutions apart. I fell into this even myself as a faculty member. There is an extraordinary holistic approach to student care. Now, I'm not saying other institutions don't care about their students, but I don't think that there's really anywhere else in the world outside of historically black institutions where people of African descent and our cultures are centered in such a way that we're not trying to measure ourselves up to anyone else with anyone else's standards, where the questions that we have about our identities 
have have answers, have people there to help us find those answers in a loving and supportive way, where the thinking about oppression is a, is is about the research. It's really more about like considering you know aspects of of disenfranchisement and other issues that we see in U.S. society as pockets of research, but not as our way of being, where you're not kind of internalizing every day going to class some forms of um, systemic oppression, you know? Fantastic. Yeah, thank you for, for sharing that. That was very enlightening. You know, on a related note, Keisha, what do you wish your fellow practitioners in education abroad knew about HBCUs and study abroad? Sure. I think one of the biggest things is that there are more than five. (laughs) (laughs) I think the biggest thing is that there are there are over 100 HBCUs. The number kind of fluctuates a little because unfortunately, some institutions have uh, merged with others. And, you know, there's some, you know, some challenges, there, but there are over 100. We can say that with confidence. Um, And yeah, there's like at least let's say I'll say 110 today because it's an an average number. there have been more than that historically. And I think one of the interesting things about our HBCUs and what people don't see often with international education is just how varied they are. So like, that's one of the things we explore in our book. You really can't compare, you know, um, a smaller um, women's college that's focused on specific kind of educational outcomes to, let's say like, you know, the, the largest, for example, of like a Howard um, that has other programs and has other, you know, again, a different kind of research agenda. Um, nor can you compare those to a school, for example, like Wiley College, which is in Texas, and it has a different, um, a different history, a different background, a different, different set of attentions. I think the other thing is that people don't realize, I think, sometimes um, outside of HBCU culture, that um, when we're choosing an HBCU, when students and their families are choosing an HBCU, they know the type of institution they're choosing. This is very, very, very different from the other institution types that get put into the category of MSIs in the U.S., which is also a problematic term. You know, for me, I see MSIs not as minority-serving institutions, but as majority-surviving institutions. And that's a primary distinction that HBCUs have over the others, right? So if you're going to an HBCU, you're not going to a place that is going to put you in a minority perspective. It is a place that you are in a majority and everything within that culture is designed to help you see yourself that way in the world. Now, where this comes into some really interesting and I think historically problematic, but I'm just going to say interesting now because I want to see it as an aspirational thing, um, issue is where our students and HBCUs are engaging with students from other institution types. Um, as David Wilson, the president of Morgan State College, would say, traditionally white institutions, which I think is important. It's a, an important distinction between traditionally white and predominantly white. He will say that when we're extending our students on programs um, in, in community with other students from other institutions in the U.S., there's not always an awareness of the cultural choice that that student and their parents have made so that there's an intention that you're going to be kind of experiencing a holistic HBCU experience anywhere you go. Now, let's say you arrive in a cohort of other American students who haven't been trained to think about you as a person of color, as a majority within a majority. The traditional U.S. culture tends to treat you as a minority. And so for the very first time in many of these students' lives, 
when they're studying abroad on our partner programs, on our cohort-based programs with other institution folks, it might be the first time that they're experiencing themselves in college as a minority and being treated as such, where there's not a kind of valuing of their Africanity and the things that they may see and experience differently in whatever location it is we're talking about in the world from their colleagues. Keisha, why is it important for students from historically marginalized or excluded groups to have access to high impact practices such as study abroad? And what are some of the outcomes that you've seen for these types of students? Until you've left the U.S., you don't know what it is to be free. Now, I don't know, you know, I think that you really have to experience that. I think until you've left the United States, you don't honestly know what it is to be free in your own body, in your own mind, in your own skin, and feel and feel a sense of empowerment in that. Now, I'm not saying that there's not racism, there aren't other challenges out there in the world, you're not going to face other things, you are. But the lens that you have to understand those things, once you take your physical self outside of the location you've grown up in, um, is an opportunity for you to decide how you're going to respond to those things, how you're going to take them in, how you're going to navigate those things. It gives you a sense of being able to, when you go out into the world, you have an opportunity to see yourself whole and free and reimagined as in a way that you really can't um, if you have generations of history kind of really standing on your head, telling you what to think, how to manage yourself, and what to do all the time. The things I've seen happen... Um, Gosh, also makes me kind of emotional when I think about it. Um, I think about students getting their passport for the first time. Um, gosh, Zach. <laughs> Coming to my <laughs> you know, it's just such a delight, you know, and you see them come into the office for the first time holding this passport with two hands, you know? Look, Dr. Abraham, look what I've got. You know, and I'll say, Well, what does this mean to you? Well, nobody else in my family had one, you know? No one else in my family had this passport. And now I can go anywhere in the world. Um, when I run into former students who talk about um, vacationing to different countries with their children, um, watching them become teachers, you know, students who had other paths, I think, in their mind, um, and then they become teachers. And they realize that it's because of the transformative experience they had abroad that they, just, they, they realize that they want to give back even more and encourage more people to go out into the world and get free. I absolutely love what you just said. Um, thank you for sharing that, Keisha. Wow. You know, I mentioned earlier that much of the literature and conversation in our field historically regarding study abroad at HBCU focuses on the barriers that keep students from participating at the same rate as students from many predominantly white institutions. You've written about how it's time to shift the narrative. How can we celebrate the work of education abroad practitioners at HBCUs? Hmm. I think a big thing is by engaging in deeper dialogue, finding more partners to talk with about their experiences. I think um, whenever I think about the barriers and how we shift them together as a community, I think about a framework that um, Angela Davis off author, uh, offered in her autobiography, where she talks about turning walls into bridges. So for every one of those supposed barriers, if we could look at that as an opportunity for strategy, uh, we could look at it as uh, we could even look at it historically. Like, don't just consider it the, consider it as a barrier and then just say, well, well, we just have that and we just accept it and we move forward with it. But rather, um, you know, considering how do we do our programming? How do we work together in ways that 
consider the historic reasons for those conditions and then work to change that, right? You know, like if one of the, one of the you know, consistent things that I think we hear is under-resourcing, right? I'm going to put it that way because I don't think it's just a question of um, monetary under-resourcing. I think sometimes, right, people are thinking about a variety of ways of under-resourcing. And that's an opportunity for partnership. It's an opportunity to say, you know, what spaces do I have that I can be inviting other people into? What is my opportunity to visit um, and to get to know these cultures better? Who can I call on, right, um, to invite into these conversations with me more? You know, there's a, a great deal of innovation happening in education abroad offices at HBCUs these days. I would love your advice on what other institutions and other practitioners can learn from the experience of HBCUs engaged in study abroad. One other thing is listening to the students. Um, I was in a conversation, it might have even been yesterday, <laughs> with someone talking about um, how we were trying to create, we were trying to create something. We were a bunch of, a bunch of us elders over here, right? Trying to create <laughs> something. <laughs> and the answer at the end of the day was, well, talk to the students. Like, uh, we can't make any of this stuff up ourselves. Like, we actually need the students to be more actively involved in the process. And I think most of the innovations that we're seeing um, in our HBCUs are coming from institutions where there are um, student activists, students engaged in the process of developing marketing materials, developing information sessions as well. I love some of the innovative work that's happening, for example, at Howard, where there are community and institution partnerships that have been growing and, you know, looking for more aspects of what it is that makes a student experience what it is to invite students in on their terms, right? So, you know, I was one of those old school faculty members who would like resist all things social media in the class. Well, you can't do that now. Like you really just lean in, like lean all the way into that, right? Ask the students questions about how they'd like to see themselves show up in the world. As someone who has thought a lot about internationalization at HBCUs over the years, what would your advice be for international education organizations like World Strides for how they can best support HBCUs in achieving their global mobility goals? I think that there's a lot of reading that needs to happen. I think there's a lot of research that needs to happen. Um, I think that, there, that some of the missing link is really about understanding the African diaspora. Um, I think really we need to understand all diasporas. I think we need to be reading much more historical narratives. I think we need to be reading autobiography. Um, I know that's that's like my specialization is my you know, is an interest, but I really do think that when you're reading autobiographies of people, for example, like... Mary Prince, right, and thinking about her journey in the world, it, they were talking about somebody that was living, you know, in the 1800s. And so her being international, an international person, an international educator, international African person of African descent, when you're reading these narratives, it creates a different perspective on how we are situated in history. I, I, I think a lot of the model that we've, we've had and we've experienced up to this, up to maybe 2020, I'm going to put it, I'm going to put it there. I think we've seen innovations since 2020 for sure. But I think the trend has been predominantly white institution model, right? Here's the model that we have. And so come on in, black and brown folks. Come on in. Anybody that we see as different, come on in. You're welcome into the space. And that doesn't work because that doesn't, that doesn't acknowledge that we all already have histories that are international. We already have some global interests in different kinds of ways. And that our historical relationship to international travel, to international engagement, 
maybe starting off at a fundamentally kind of different place. And I think we need to know each other. I think the issue is really about awareness and knowing each other and the cultures that we come from and doing the research to get that information. I think that's really going to transform things. Thank you so much for sharing that. You know, we would be remiss to have this conversation and not talk about identity and intersectionality. How have you seen students come to understand or reframe their own identity through their path to, during, and after study abroad programs? I think a lot about students from, I would say, hyphenated identities in the U.S., I think this is a kind of underrepresented, a specific kind of category of underrepresentation that we're not even really talking about a lot in study abroad. So by that, I mean, I think about, for example, Haitian American students that would come to my office in South Florida to ask about studying abroad, right? And so in the before process, it might come asking about going on a program and they would immediately say, well, you know, I want to go to France. Okay, let's talk about why you want to go to France, right? Let's talk about what is your historical relationship to the particular particular positioning in diaspora that you have, right? So there's oftentimes a desire for some form of um, heritage seeking. That heritage could be towards the diaspora, sorry, towards the colonial empire, right? That influenced the countries people are coming from or the countries that their parents are coming from. Sometimes it is also a question of kind of seeking heritage in a way of saying, I just want to go somewhere where people may see me may see me differently. And I don't really know what that looks like. And so then we can go through a list of different possible countries to go to. But for the student that is, let's say, Haitian American, thinks they want to go to France, they're starting from a place that has a lot of information in it that isn't, that is kind of like a, it's almost like a weight you're carrying with you into the process of of choosing where to go, right? And And the idea that at that stage, I think many people aren't realizing that this is just going to be one of your many journeys, that this is the beginning of your journey into more global learning, right? And so then in the middle ground, it's like, you know, then you go to a place and you're, all of the assumptions about the world hit you smack in the face, right? <laughs> Literally, as soon as you arrive, for many students from under, underrepresented backgrounds in the U.S., um, you may arrive and nobody knows to look for you. Because the thought of you being the American, right, when you look like me or like other people of color, right, you being the American is not the idea of the person who is coming to meet you. And so then you're grappling with this idea of, for many of our students, they talk about um, experiencing themselves being an American for the very first time abroad. It's a word, a term that they never saw themselves connected with until they go abroad. And then all of the interrogation around, well, what kind of American? American relationship to this other American who was from which region and how and like what are the regional specificities of that Um, and then even within our programs that we're doing we're, we're working with abroad a lot of times our advising is again based on a particular type of American a particular type of institution culture that doesn't necessarily see the differences in HBCU culture like for example we don't have bars on our campuses and so we don't have a, cult, a drinking culture. It's like not part, it's not, that's like not a part of the culture mm, itself. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. then, you know, we talk about going abroad and the fa- fears of that. HBCU students are often like, why do they keep talking about this? Why do they keep warning us about drinking in these countries? Like, why would we do that? Right. And so all the things that they get to learn about other Americans is also happening abroad. Right. And then the third part of that in terms of the, um, the return journey and the, what comes after the experience, I think for so many people, it's a question of finally, maybe sometimes rectifying 
what one's relationship is to the notion of home and having to kind of expand that. So when students go, for example, to, let's say, to, to places in West Africa or even Southern Africa and are engaging with different ways of understanding nationality there, for some people, I think it can be kind of disheartening. But for others, it's like an opening and an awareness of other possibilities, other ways of understanding. It's not, it may not be the entire continent that you can lay claim to as a home, but maybe there are some ways to think about what are the patterns of language that your people have, for example. Like maybe you're coming from um, South Carolina, from, the, from, the, from Georgia, from the Sea Islands, and finally maybe you studied abroad in Barbados, for example, or, or in Ghana, and you started to hear language that feels familiar to you. And so it might not be home, home in the way you thought it was going to be, but there's some value in your sense of your home that lives within you that no one can ever take away from you because you've had this experience. That was incredibly brilliant. Thank you for sharing that, Keisha. You know, as we know, historically, white students, particularly white women, have been the most represented in study abroad. And I want to acknowledge my own identity as a white man interviewing you today on these topics. How can education abroad professionals take steps towards an environment where all students can feel like their experience and their identity can align with partaking in education abroad? I love this. I think one of the big things is that we all have to remember that none of us are just one thing, you know? And this goes back to the question of intersectionality as well, because I see this in this as well. And I think it's like, you know, sometimes we think we're doing everything we can, you know, to be inclusive, but we haven't thought about other parts of our own self that we might see mirrored in a student or a student might see being mirrored um, through us in them. When we really consider that we are all a variety of identities showing up in this work, and that we have each one of those aspects of our identity have different privileges in it. There are privileges to being a person of color. There are privileges to, you know, one's sexual orientation uh, and different locations as well. There are privileges to our gender. There are, you know, all these different kinds of privileges. And I think sometimes um, in the desire to create, it's funny, I'm saying this and I'm looking across my room at um, another book in the Standards of Action series, and it kind of gives me the answer to this as well. It's the book um, that Nick Gozik and Heather Barkley-Hamir did for yes. that series, yes. right? It's called A House Where We All Belong. And so I think the structure of that book really helps us to understand how to do this work much better as a community, thinking about what, what, what elements do you need to, all, to have in place to build a house where we all belong? How do we allow for conversations around our identities and our belonging, our sense of belonging, to forefront our experiences with engaging with each other? And I'll just say quickly with that, I think one of the first things that we do, we have to do, is really spend significantly more time in each aspect of our orientations, writ large, like we do a variety of different kinds of orientations, but we need to spend much longer getting to know one another before we dig into the deep, deep, deep stuff of doing this work. I think it's really, really important. I think that's where so many issues could be um, ameliorated with just more opportunities to know each other from a human perspective. Taking the time to really connect. Yes, I love that. Thank you for yeah. saying that. And I would love to ask your advice on, on how we as international educators can be intentional in the way we amplify voices with dignity and without tokenizing folks? One of the first things is names. I think about names all the time. Think about like how names are spelled, the meaning of names, how we engage with names. 
one of the great examples is like you're reading a book or you're you know you're engaging with with a name that's an unfamiliar name and you know you see it so often people will say oh well i'm gonna just give you a nickname i'm gonna just make it short i'm gonna just give you this affectionate nickname because it's easier for me <laughs> like okay that might be easier for you but the minute you've done that you know, you've erased some part of me. You have made me not show up in the way that I might want to show up. You know, you've erased the history that comes with my name. And it's not, it might sound like a small thing, but I think it really is like, you know, again, this sense of, I can't, if, if, I'm, if I'm misnamed, I can't belong. I was doing some work years ago um, around LGBTQ identity in the Caribbean um, because so much of what I would have been reading was it was framed in a very male way. So right, so many so many texts about kind of gay male culture. And it's like, okay, this is all very interesting. But what language do we have for women loving women communities in my culture? Right? Like what do we call that? Right? And I started to realize that it's it's through the power of naming that we I, we acknowledge what we accept, what we challenge, what we have in us, um, and also what we may not know. And so when I was able to find language it's like, oh, well, this has, this has already existed here, right? Once you find a language, find ways of saying a thing, it's always existed in this space. And it exists in this way here because this is the way that the language works. Yeah, so I think about this a lot. I think just how we name things really matters and, and thinking about how we do that with intention, whether it's the name of a program, whether it's the name of a company, whether it's the name of you know um, a student, a faculty member, um, how, how we introduce ourselves to each other. That's great advice. And, and thank you for sharing that. You know, Florida, which is a state that you've lived and worked in for many years, has been impacted by recent anti-DEI legislation. This has been a very hot topic on the podcast this season as our field comes to terms with what this means for our work. What are some resources that our audience can tap into? And what are some things we can proactively begin to work on so we can continue the work of increasing access to education abroad, even with legislation limiting direct DEI engagement? Yeah, um, I really think a lot of this, again, goes back to reading. I go back to the classics a lot on this topic. Well, that and also, you know, opportunities to disrupt wherever possible. So I will say any presentation I give in Florida or just random conversations, no matter what, we're going to talk about this, you know, <laughs> in, in interrupting in a, in a session you know, uh, with language that gets banned. And it's like, you're not going to ban my words. You know, that's just not going to happen. So we're going to find ways around that. And I think one of the things in terms of resources, I think everybody needs to read Audre Lorde. <laughs> you know, her work may be a little older, 86 or so. Uh, Sister Outsider came out. But there's a lot of advice, I think, for grappling with these kind of conditions in some of the early writers, uh, writers of color in particular, I think everyone needs to read like Paulo Freire. We need to read uh, Henry Giroux. We need to think about these traditions of popular education that are what saved many of us from systems that were already this way. I think that's the thing about Florida and the places that um, it's, it's interesting on a large level because even though the legislation is being more bold um, in its statements these days, for many of us, this has been the context of our education for a long time. It just wasn't being said out loud, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like I went to a graduate program where we had to have um, a certain number of modern languages and a certain number of ancient languages. And when I said I wanted to do Shona as my ancient language, they said, no, no, but ancient languages are Greek, Greek and Latin. Ah, uh-huh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. 
so there aren't any African <laughs> okay <laughs> right so how <laughs> so you know then we're working to change that one of the things too is that like it, I, this is also why I, I always use the Jedi framework and I use it in a variety of ways now again like whether it's joy and justice and and, and equity uh, digni with dignity and intention a variety of kind of framings like that because I think that DEI itself is a boogeyman I think it's been made into a boogeyman. It's been made into this big old monster and it doesn't have any, it, it by itself, as an acronym by itself, um, it doesn't necessarily explain what the work is that's happening under it. And so DEI stuff can be banned when this stuff is like this amorphous kind of cloud. But when, you're, when we're specific about what it is that we're trying to achieve, what it is we're trying to do. And again, thinking about what is the outcome, right? The outcome of doing work in the Jedi space, doing work that is about justice and equity with dignity and intention, the outcome is not just more numbers of different groups fitting into boxes, right? The outcome is really more about how do we get ourselves educated in a free, holistic, internationally responsive, globally responsive kind of way. I think also this is this these kind of U.S. policies around DEI, as they frame it here, right? Um, I think they are all galvanizing for us in international education because this is a space where we have an opportunity to shift to take students literally out of their home location and shift their frame of reference by being in another location and talking about these things in another location. So you literally could like be teaching a class in Florida about um you know um classism in different world regions and help students understand inference right so it doesn't have to only be a u.s context how are we teaching globally in a way that helps us see the issues that can then come back and have ripple effects in the u.s you know you're really giving me a lot to read here <laughs> during this conversation keisha uh, thank you so much I would love to hear from you on the topic of Black students who pursue study abroad in Africa and their journey of discovery, impact, and the challenges they may face with their identity during the program. What are some stories and takeaways you'd like to share with our listeners on this topic? Oof, there's so much here. There's, it's like, it's so, so rich. Um, one of the things I think that many people talk about in common, uh, many Black students talk about in common when, they're, when they've studied abroad in Africa especially in mixed groups, I think this is the way I want to approach that, um, in mixed groups with other Americans, is that there's an, there's an expectation of being seen in a way that does not include the four, potentially 400 years of history that separates us um, physically from this landscape. And so there's this idea I think sometimes people have that they're going to um, immediately connect with a sense of home. And quite often students say that they were surprised that they were seen as American and, 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 re and reminded of their Americanness before necessarily being welcomed in a way that said, you know, I see you as from home. But I think one of the issues in that is that we're not always thinking about the differences in phenotypes and and where people traveled from from the from the African continent into the U.S. or into the Caribbean, we're not always thinking kind of about who lost people in that journey, and then who's been looking for their people for a long time since that journey, 
and what that interaction looks like. And so the sense of reception for a Black American student on the African continent varies, I think, very greatly depending on a variety of factors. How a student dresses, how a student wears their hair, how a student's um, literally physical features look, because you know, it, uh, like Asia and like everywhere else in the world, right? There are different phenotypical fitch features with different ethnic groups on the continent. And so um, personally, I'll say, I, um, when, I, when I first moved to Zimbabwe to live, I, I immediately was kind of struck by food that felt like home food, um, you know, eating mm. greens. I was like, oh my gosh, they eat greens here. Nobody told me they're going to eat greens. You know, <laughs> I wrote my mother, like, they eat greens, right? And, and it wasn't necessarily being seen physically as connected, but there were cultural mannerisms, habits I had that I didn't know were African habits. And so the ability to put my hand in food and eat in a particular way, like quickly to learn to eat in a traditional way. And, and you know, I didn't know that this was going to be a signal to the families I was living with, like, oh, she's okay. Like, she, there is something, there is still something in her. I think that's the point I want to make about right, that, right? There's still something in there. And then... I literally would go to different places and have people say to me, oh, you look like, you look like, you know, this cousin, you look like somebody in my family. You look like you could be, um, you could be from these people. You could be from those people. And I think a lot of our students experience that where people are trying to place you. The clothes may throw you off if you're wearing clothes that are not really, con- you know, common in the particular region you're in and the clothes may signal America, but there's something else people are trying to place in you. And I I think in the cohort group of American students, it gets really complicated because I think sometimes there are students who are kind of struggling with how are their peers going to see them? What kind of questions are they going to ask them about their experience? And you're just really trying to have your own experience, right, in this. And I think I think even though there are challenges in finding home, maybe in the beginning, by the end of many people's journeys, they have an they have experienced um other ways of thinking about how Africa lives in them and how they live in Africa, right? Like I remember bringing home, like telling my mother, sitting down for dinner for the first time when I got back um, from Zimbabwe and digging into my food and I just forgot. And I just, I just decided I was going to eat my food with my hands the same way. And my, my grandma, my mother stopped eating and said, wow, did you know that's how your grandmother used to eat? I hadn't met my grandmother. I, she had passed away, right? So this is a, so for her. So for her, my mom got to experience right Africa through me, in a way that I couldn't have intentionally carried back for her, right? So it's how it lives in us and how we live in it. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thinking about the future, what do you see on the horizon as it relates to HBCUs? Whose work should we be lifting up? And how would you like to continue to see study abroad at HBCUs evolve? So let's see, whose work should we be lifting up? Definitely the work of the Ralph Bunch Center um, at Howard University, led by my dear friend and colleague, Tania Hope. Um, They're doing extraordinary work there. They have ongoing year-long seminars on different world regions that they have access to being in D.C. Just some extraordinary programming that is really kind of a holistic way of thinking about education abroad advising and planning. Um, I think they have a really well-staffed office and that's a, that's a big thing as well. I think we're seeing more, and I'm seeing more positions cropping up in many more institutions. I think that's a really great sign. And I think we one of the shifts I'd love to see, even even having been that faculty member that had a you know, faculty appointment that then got split into study abroad, um, I think that model may not be the strongest model for the work we're trying to achieve. 
um, I think people get spread really kind of thin. And so one of the things I'd love to see is just more acknowledgement of the work that it takes to run a study abroad office, to run successful programs, um, and that there's a whole a whole system in that as well that's just as valuable as your kind of faculty lines. Um, I think um, other institutions are doing some really extraordinary work. Elizabeth City State College, I mentioned earlier, North Carolina. Morehouse College, um, they're doing really great work now also bringing in more students through their exchange model that's kind of growing. Spelman College, of course, because, well, Spelman, no. Um, <laughs> it was because of Spelman, no. <laughs> but truly, because, you know, Spelman now has the Gordon Zeto Center, which even in the name is such a beautiful thing. The name, the Gordon Zeto Center, is named for the first Spelman student who went to South Africa and the first student to come into, into Spelman um, from, from South Africa. So this, like the name itself it speaks to the kind of exchange that is intentional within the institution. Um, I think we're seeing more institutions understand when, although their mission statements may have said global in it somewhere along the way for a long time, I think more of our schools are starting to, are starting to articulate what that means for them in that particular location. Um, I think about the future. I think about, um, I really think about equity uh, and I think about hearing more conversations about the institutions that aren't the ones that I just mentioned. <laughs> they are more of the ones that aren't named very often. Like I wanted, I want people to feel much more confident talking about um, some of the extraordinary work also at Tennessee State. Tennessee State University has done some fantastic work that really helps the students situate themselves within their own sense of diaspora, business students. I mean, all kind of different disciplines. I think there's much more kind of discipline-specific concentrations also that are intentionally global. Seeing more of our institutions commit to making sure that every student that comes in the door leaves with a passport. I don't care whether you're studying abroad at the end of the day with that passport, but you need to have it. I think every one of our schools need to be intentional about giving our students access to the world, and our partners need to help us with that. Because, again, like if we're talking about what, what is the value of these schools and why are they so important to U.S. culture and to world culture? This HBCUs have educated more of the world's teachers. Okay, more of the U.S.'s teachers, but those teachers also in the world, right? More teachers, more doctors, more mm. nurses, more lawyers, more every form of professional service, professional career. HBCUs have educated more of those than anyone else because they've been the places where more of us have felt safe for longer periods of time. And so if you think about that exponentially, we all owe a debt to HBCUs for America being what it is. And so that means that the future looks like HBCUs receive a greater share of funding to support our global programs. HBCUs have the capacity to hire more staff to run our programs. We also have our own autonomous programs. And I think ultimately our partnerships are more intentional considering the largesse again of our landscape. And so I want to see more rural students, more rural HBCU students studying abroad, um, larger campuses, larger, larger centers, larger programs, right, on those, on those campuses in particular. Dr. Abraham, this has been a really powerful and impactful conversation for me, and I just want to thank you. But I know this is only part of what you do. As we begin to close out here, I want to lift up the work that you are doing with your consulting agency. Please share with us a bit about what you're doing in this realm. So the Abraham Consulting Agency started because um, when my job disappeared, I had to consult my own agency. I needed to figure out, you know, <laughs> like, what is this Abraham going to do all in the world? And so um, I'm really, really grateful for the opportunity to work with so many inst international partners, institutions, universities, 
collaborators um, on a range of creative projects. And so my work in the agency really centers well-being and affirmative education. Um, and so I mean affirmative education writ large. I know that it's a nod to the challenges that have been happening in U.S. structures, but it's bigger than that to me. I think affirmative education is really an opportunity for us to consider the choices that we make and how we are creative, how we are intentional about lifting up joy and well-being in the practice of being educators, especially international educators. So to that end, I'm grateful for opportunities to work with dear colleagues like Giselle de Boudin on our initiative that's called Writing Our Way Forward, writing with international educators. Um, we recognize that I want to try to bring more of the humanities back. Both of us are like, humanities, where are the humanities gone? And so um, I'm doing a range of projects now like that one that help us to kind of use the roots of the humanities practices to advance global learning uh, with faculty, staff, our students um, in a variety of ways. Yeah, thank you very much for sharing that. I, I know you have a, a PhD in, in comparative literature, and it's clear to me that you believe in the power of storytelling to achieve positive change. Uh, and, and that's one of the, the lessons that I've learned from our mutual friend, Giselle de Baudin, who is a friend of this podcast and uh, director of global initiatives at Rollins College. For our listeners who might want to take advantage of the um, innovative professional development opportunities that you and Giselle are making available, how can they find that? Oh, great. So we're doing um, our first in-person iteration of our, of our writing course at the end of the Global Inclusion Conference in Chicago. That will take place on Friday, November 3rd. The way to access it is through my website, and it's super simple. It's just abraham.agency slash workshops. And um, so that will be the first in-person iteration of this. And then we also have online workshops. There'll be one in January. And we also run a course uh, on this. I think we're kind of also open to other forms of collaboration on it. But all of that is available on my website. I tried to make the site super easy. So it's just abraham.agency, and you can get, dig through there and find the link to the, to the courses and the workshops. Well, I can't imagine a better place to end things than right there. Dr. Keisha Abraham, thank you so much for being here. What a great conversation. <laughs> thank you so much, Zach. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of Changing Lives Through Education Abroad. I'm your host, Zach McKinnis, and please make sure to join us next week as we continue to explore topics around international education and exchange. Thank you to my spectacular World Strides colleagues, Lindsay Kelcher and Sarah Kachuba, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Please subscribe to Changing Lives for Education Abroad on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and share with your friends and colleagues. Let's create life-changing moments together. Thank you.